Postman Pot, first written in 2008. When Dr. Alex Wodak proposed that cannabis be available at the post office in 2008, it sparked national, that is Australian, outrage. But how exactly do we break Australia's habit? Alinta Pilkington traces the marijuana debate. Paper, slant, fold, roll, funnel, weed, cut, sprinkle, tobacco, pack. Lick, fold, twist, light, inhale. Annalie, 23, expertly rolls a joint and luxuriously takes a puff, inhaling the luminous plume of grey smoke. Breathing out, coils of smoke slowly emerge from her mouth and stream into a haze before her. She sighs, breathes it in, deeper. It's light, happy, she murmurs, eyes closed in bliss. Puff, draw, exhale. Getting stoned feels like your whole system is being cleared out and replaced by warm milk. She giggles, quote that. I do. It was Alex Wodak, Director of Alcohol and Drug Services at St Vincent's Hospital and President of the National Harm Minimisation Association, NHMA, who first made the controversial suggestion to have the government sell cannabis in little packets at the post office in May 2008. For such a simple suggestion, there was certainly a lot of outrage, but why exactly is there so much controversy surrounding smoking a joint? Lee, lounging in her Oxford Street apartment, comments lazily, I don't see why it should be illegal. I'm not hurting anyone by taking it myself. It's my choice. Smoking cannabis is fun. Sydney Morning Herald journalist Lisa Pryor says, it's time to stand up and say that illegal drug use is fun and unless you're caught, harmless, and it's the sheer funness of the drug that has been the unacknowledged elephant in the room for anti-pot policy makers. But how harmless is cannabis really? Even Lee herself was admitted to Bankstown Psychiatric Hospital in March for extreme bipolar disorder and suicidal tendencies. A long-term Swedish study of 50,465 army conscripts found that those who had tried cannabis by 18 had 2.4 to 6.7 times the risk of being diagnosed with schizophrenia, with the risk of psychosis being increased in about 40% of participants. Cannabis smoking was also found to exacerbate existing mental conditions like Lee's bipolar disorder. There are also a number of studies confirming a cannabis crime drug link. According to the Australian Institute, AI, in 2005, 94% of institutionalised delinquents had used marijuana, with 18% of them being under its influence while committing their, cl- committing their crime. As another Sydney Morning Herald journalist, Michael Duffy, comments, what drives up crime? A big contributor is a high proportion of young men, easy access to guns and ample drugs. The addiction to cannabis does exist in Australia. In fact, according to recent research by the National Drug and Research Centre, Australia's drug addiction rates have taken over those of the United States, with 30% of our true blue nation reporting a drug abuse problem in comparison to 6.5% in the United States. The problem's here, it's now, and it's mainstream. In fact, cannabis has been a staple of Australian youth culture for decades. Most readers will be familiar with the image of the 1960s pot-toking Woodstock hippie who happily contemplated the cosmic powers of the common potato. But cannabis's long and highly charged love affair with Australia started long before that. 
It was Sir Joseph Banks who first imported the marijuana plant to Australia. As botanists of the British Navy, he hoped that the convicts of the first fleet would utilise the hemp-producing plants to supply enough rope for the entire fleet. Apparently, they found other uses for the weed as well. Cannabis didn't enjoy commercial success until its incarnation as Cigars de Joy in the early 1900s, which was sold at boutique tobacconists as a relaxing alternative to tobacco. But when these joyful cigars were outlawed by the federal government in 1925, they passed out of public sight without protest. Enter the Vietnam War. The 1960s saw a movement of social and political rebellion where young people were actively expressing their opinions through music, rallies and protest marches. Yankee soldiers holidaying on Australian soil brought with them this glamorous and seemingly innocuous drug, which was immediately adopted into the hippie subculture. Between the 1970s and 1995, Australia followed an official harm minimisation policy, the purpose of which, according to Steve Bolt from the Legal Information Access Centre, LIAC, was harm reduction, minimising the negative impacts associated with drug use individually and socially. This lenient approach changed with John Howard. His 12-year reign as Prime Minister left a tough-on-drugs legacy. Not only did he lead the charge in criminalising cannabis smoking in South Australia, Western Australia and the Australian Capital Territory, he passed new laws to give Commonwealth unprecedented powers to intervene in drug issues that had previously been the sole domain of states. Former New South Wales Labor Premier Morris Yemmer, ironically a true disciple of uh, Howard's, who was liberal, also took a hardline cannabis stance, creating laws giving 10 years of jail to anyone found growing as few as five hydroponic cannabis plants. The war on drugs can never be completely won, but it can be controlled, says Gary Christian, Secretary of Drug Free Australia, who agrees that these tough policies are the best way to break Australia's out-of-control cannabis habit. The best way to control the use of something is to prohibit it. Just look at alcohol and tobacco. 90% of Australians drink, but 20%, up to 70% in its heyday, smoke because it's legal. But why should we outlaw cannabis? No one has ever overdosed on it. In fact, while we're on the topic of alcohol and tobacco, who are, which are responsible of, for 97% of drug-related deaths per year, isn't outlawing the comparatively soft cannabis somewhat hypocritical? Post Office pot Alex Wodak agrees that the government needs to admit that there is an existing addiction to cannabis in Australian society. There are already more than 2 million Australians who are cannabis users and thus the prohibition policies is a losing battle and that legalising it would provide the government with more levers to regulate the drug. After all, look at alcohol prohibition in the United States. The punitive criminalisation led to skyrocketing crime rates. Whilst the alcohol was legalised again in 1930s, taxation killed the mafia stranglehold. Says Wodak, I advocate taxation, strict regulation and cultivation and sale, oh, strict regulation of cultivation and sale, health warnings, consumer quality controls and age restrictions on sale. Wodak's views are an oddity. He's up against the vast majority of the national community, says DFA's Gary Christian. And the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, AIHW, National Drug Strategy Household Survey, does seem to support this, showing 63% of Australians in 2007 would support increased penalties for the supply or sale of marijuana, whilst a mere 21.2% support legalising the drug. But what exactly does Wodak have against drug criminalisation? 
Well, for one thing, it's expensive. According to AI, in 1998-1999, Australian government spent almost um, AU $1.5 billion on drug law enforcement. In the United States, Bush Sr. has waged a war against drugs since 1989, pouring a US $7.9 billion into the scheme. The m main result of the United States criminalization policies are that the number of Americans jailed has increased from 50,000 in 1980 to 500,000 today, meaning that the United States, with 5% of the world's population, has 25% of its prisoners. But Wojduk argues that such policies can lead to an underground criminal culture to spring up, with harsh penalties leading to increased drug prices, which then provides profit incentives for criminal elements. According to the Drug Info Clearinghouse, prohibition can lead to an increase in undetected deaths and injuries. DFA's Christian agrees. Prohibition is something that people wanted. It's a natural side effect. But according to Christian, legalizing cannabis will only create more users because the stigma associated with breaking the law will no longer apply. Decriminalization has actually occurred in the US's Oregon and Alaska, leading to a 10% increase in cannabis use. In contrast, Australia's experience with decriminalization in the ACT and South Australia show that there was no significant increase in use here. There is one country where strict drug prohibition has had unparalleled success, Sweden. Once a harm minimization pioneer, Sweden now follows a restrictive criminalization on drug policy with spectacular results. This approach includes compulsory treatment of drug users and takes a considerable public resourcing for its rehabilitation and education programs. But in the midst of a financial crisis, the incredible amounts of capital Sweden uses to fund these projects is more than Australia than an Australian project could dedicate. What is the best way to control the use of cannabis, prohibitionist or harm minimization? It's more than any article can answer. Maybe the real question here is, can we win the, can the war against cannabis ever be won? I asked this to Annie Lee and she laughs incredulously. Why would you want it to? What is clear is that the debate around cannabis has gone to, uh, well,